You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the US. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you are listening to your favorite international architecture podcast, <laughs> where we talk buildings, buildings, and more buildings. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. Welcome back to Fresh Hell. We do love a good building, though. I mean, we really do. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for turning your radio knob to the right position. You're tuning into the macabre side of wireless transmission. I feel like I'm starting a Rocky Horror Picture Show now. <laughs> this is good stuff. Really, though, we're very glad that you're here. And as always, we want to give a shout out to all of our Patreon members and thank them. Thank you so much, everybody, for your support. But speaking of Patreon, how was game night? Uh, sorry, I couldn't be there. I was very busy sleeping. I know. It was a kind of a, hey, I can do this at like 8.30 in the evening. So it was great, though. It was really great. We got to talk with some West Coast folks, which was nice. And it's just, it's been a really stressful couple of weeks. My uncle, who lives on the other side of the state, unfortunately is kind of reaching a stage in life where he's not able to live on his own. And so I'm having to sort of sort that all out for him, which is hard in every way, but especially being so far away from him and it's just a lot. So it was really nice to be able to just sort of laugh and just enjoy the most ridiculous things, really. Yeah, it was great. We really missed you, though. Gonna be there next time. Yeah. I missed it, too. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to know more about our Patreon program, please listen until the end of the episode, and we'll tell you more about it then. Because now I think we need to jump right in to today's episode, which is the second part of us telling you everything that you need to know about the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, you might want to pause right here and go back to episode uh, 147, I think it is, the Chateau yeah. Marmont part one. There you will hear, you know, how the hotel was built, how it became kind of a secret hiding spot for celebrities since the 1930s. And we also told you about Jean Harlow's time at the Chateau and about Howard Hughes, who used to creep around the hotel and spy on all the pretty girls at the pool. Yeah, that's right. And this week, we're actually, we are going to be discussing a little bit of sexual assault. Yes, and uh, drug addiction. Yes. Uh, Howard Hughes, yes. yes. So Howard Hughes was many things. One of them was movie director and producer. So that's actually two things, but eh, who's counting? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have another story of another famous director who was tied to the Marmont, and it's actually one of my fellow countrymen, Billy Wilder. So for those of you who are not so much into old movies, Billy Wilder was the director of many classics like Sabrina, uh, Some Like It Hot, and one of my favorite movies, Sunset Boulevard. I'm really glad you said that because Billy Wilder is, is like, it's a name I recognize, but oh, couldn't tell you. But then I've seen all those films and they're fabulous. So yeah. Then you also didn't know that he was Austrian, right? I didn't. No, I had no idea. But it's so interesting because he was actually born... So he was born in 1906 in a part of Austria-Hungary that nowadays belongs to Poland. I assume many people think that when they hear Billy Wilder was Austrian, that he was, you know, from Vienna or Salzburg, or maybe from Styria like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Remember, Austria was a huge country back then, and it would take you a long time to travel to the furthest part of the empire. And I remember one of Billy Wilder's quotes that I read somewhere. And he said something like, I was born 30 minutes from Vienna by telegraph. And that really <laughs> made me laugh. That's good. So Billy Wilder moved to Berlin. At first he was writing crime stories. I think he would have been a fellow Hellion. And then later he became a screenwriter. Before it was possible for him to live from his, his writing, he had another job. And it's so interesting. He worked as a kind of dance partner you could hire. Oh, like Johnny and Dirty Dancing in the Poconos? Like, <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's called Taxi Dancer in English. In German, it's Eintänzer. Okay. Those are people who were hired by bars and ballrooms, and they would dance with the people there. So that's interesting, I think. I don't know. Does this still exist in any place I bet out it there? Does. I don't know. Somewhere. So yeah, back to Billy Wilder. He became pretty successful writing screenplays in Berlin. 
but he was Jewish. And so when Adolf Hitler rose to power, he left Germany. And like many people, many, many Jewish people who left Germany, at first he went to Paris. But soon after, he decided to travel to Los Angeles. And where did he stay when he first arrived in the City of Angels? Ah, that's right, the Chateau Marmont. And because he didn't have a permanent visa yet, he would have to leave the country from time to time. I think mostly he went to Mexico. But he would always return to the Marmont. Billy really enjoyed the privacy there. He would mostly stay in his room, you know, typing away on his typewriter. But at one point, he decided to return to Europe to see his mother. And he actually wanted to convince her to travel to the States with him. So he told Anne Little, you remember Anne Little from, from last week's episode, she managed the hotel. And so he told her, listen, I have to leave for a while, but I'll be back soon. And she goes, okay, sure. And so Billy goes to Europe. I think his mother was actually living in Vienna at the time. And he talks to his mom and he begs her to leave the country with him because... Obviously, he fears for her safety. Mm. But his mom refuses, and so Billy Wilder has to leave without her, and he returns to Los Angeles, and he walks into the lobby of the Chateau Marmont, and he asks for his regular room. And they tell him, we're sorry, but your regular room is booked right now. And not only is his regular room booked, all the rooms are booked out. Oh no. And Billy Wilder gets really upset, and he says, what the fuck? I mean, he didn't say what the fuck, but I'm sure he was thinking He was it. thinking it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I told you that I'll be back. And Anne Little says, yeah, but you never said when. <laughs> and Billy Wilder, I mean, he has to agree. Yeah, that's that's on him then. That's his problem. Right. Allegedly, he then says, I would rather sleep in a restroom here than stay in any other hotel than the Marmont. Wow. And that gives Anne an idea. Because just down the corridor that leads to the ladies' restroom, right next door to it, there was a Teeny tiny room, a bit bigger than a closet, but big enough that you could put in a, a little bed, right? <laughs> and she offers it to Billy Wilder, but he has to promise to always keep it locked so that nobody walks in by accident while looking for the toilets. And everybody's happy. And that's how Billy Wilder stayed in the tiny closet-like room for a couple of days until another room became available. I love it. It's just like the flex in the movie Best in Show. I love that movie. I love there are so many movie tie-ins with this episode that has so much to do with, like, old Hollywood and all the films and yeah. film stars. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's fun. Of course, Billy Wilder is being this awesome writer who comes up with great stories. And he turned this incident into a colorful fib by twisting the truth a little bit and mm -hmm. adding things. So in the end, he told people that he lived in one of the restrooms of the Marmont when he first came to town because he couldn't afford anything else. And he always said it was tiny, but at least it had six toilets. I mean, you can't really argue with that. Sometimes he would say that women would walk into his room at all hours of the day and they would already start to undress until they realized that they had walked into the wrong room. <laughs> or he would say that women would see that he looked very upset and he would tell them how much he worried about his mother. Now, this part I think is really true because Billy Wilder did, of course, worry a lot about his mother, uh, Eugenia, and his whole family, of course. And he would not see his mother again. His mother and her husband, Adolf, they died in concentration camps. Uh, so did one of his grandmothers. He must have felt so much survivor's guilt. Yeah, I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. Awful. So the next story we have from the Marmont is also very sad and upsetting. First of all, the story about how James Dean got his role in Rebel Without a Cause. So the screenwriter-director Nicholas Ray, he had moved into one of the bungalows at the Chateau Marmont after he had separated from his second wife, who was Gloria Graham. Rumors had it that Nicholas Ray had found Gloria in bed with his son, her stepson, who was named Anthony or Tony, and he was 13 at the time. And I know maybe that sounds like every teenager's dream or mm. like the most common setup for a bad porn film, right? But if these rumors were in fact true, then she was sexually assaulting a minor, you know? And also, Absolutely, yeah. whether or not the rumors are true, she married her former stepson, Anthony, in 1960. So there's probably possibly some credibility to those alleged rumors. 
Nicholas Ray is living in one of the bungalows, and he would often host parties there, and people like Dennis Hopper, Zsa Zsa Gabor, and Jane Mansfield would be guests there regularly. And so Hollywood lore has it that James Dean, who really wanted to star in Ray's next film, which was going to be Rebel Without a Cause, he came to one of these parties. And he didn't walk through the door. He decided to jump through the window. And it seems like that really did make an impression on Nicholas Ray and James Dean got the part, which is... It's kind of cool. <laughs> an incredible story. Yeah. Now for the sad side of the story. So James Dean's co-star in that film was, of course, the beautiful Natalie Wood, who was 16 years old at the time. Natalie had been in movies since she was a really young kid, since she was five. And so she had hoped that the part in Rebel would maybe give her a little bit of a transition and show some range and help her become the more mature woman she wanted to play in roles. She wasn't a kid anymore, right? But she had this very good girl image and was thought not to be right for the part of Judy, even more so because all of the young actresses seemed to be after the part, right? They could take their pick. So why were they going to go with someone who was just known as a good girl? Not a good fit. But one evening, Natalie also attended one of the parties that Nicholas hosted at his bungalow. And it's there that she meets Dennis Hopper. And he was 18 at the time. And so he has this definite bad boy image. And Natalie decides that she's going to leave with Dennis after the party at the bungalow. And so they get really drunk. And I think Dennis was driving, not 100% sure though. Whoever was driving, they end up in a car accident and they are taken to the hospital. And the doctor there calls Natalie a juvenile delinquent. And so she calls Nicholas Ray and says, the doctor here just called me a juvenile delinquent. Now, do you think I can get the part? And she did. I just have to jump in right here because it's such a pet peeve of mine. Please, please, please. Public announcement, never drink and drive. My mom was in a car crash when I was a kid. She was in the back of the car. And the car she was in got hit by a car that was full of drunk teenagers. And anyway, she was in a hospital for a long time. Awful. And I hate how lightly drunk driving is still taken in Austria. So please don't. Yeah. It's still taken lightly here, too. I always cringe when people just joke about drunk driving. Like, it, those jokes haven't been funny since the 50s, if they were even funny then. You know what I mean? It's just drive sober, get a ride. All right, getting off our soapbox. <laughs> now, this is the sad story about Natalie Wood. So we all know that she had a very tragic and mysterious death. I keep debating covering it, but anyway. Uh, she really had to go through a lot of, mm. of difficult things. And around the time she was cast for Rebel, she was then in a relationship with Nicholas Ray. Remember, he was in his 40s and she was a teenager. And she lived with him at the bungalow at Chateau Marmont for a while. But one other thing did happen to Natalie at the Marmont before that. So Natalie confided to her younger sister, Lana, that one night while she was at the Marmont, she was raped by a big Hollywood star. And you may already know exactly what I'm talking about and who this alleged rapist is because Lana published a book last year where she names him. So this is an excerpt from an article that was in Vanity Fair on November 4th, 2021. It's by Savannah Walsh, and this is excerpts from that article. So, quote, When Kirk Douglas died in 2020, at age 103, it was Natalie Wood's name that trended alongside his on Twitter. In 2018, Natalie's younger sister Lana claimed on a podcast that 16-year-old Natalie had been raped by a big star at the Chateau Marmont Hotel. Rumors linking Douglas to Natalie's assault persisted, but her alleged abuser had been gone unnamed until now. Quote, I remember that Natalie looked especially beautiful when Mom and I dropped her off that night at the Chateau Marmont entrance, Lana writes in her upcoming memoir, Little Sister, My Investigation into the Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. The article continues, uh, According to the news outlet, Lana claimed that Douglas raped Natalie in the summer of 1955, around the time that both sisters were filming The Searchers. Their mother, Maria Zakarenko, had reportedly scheduled Natalie's meeting with Douglas, hoping that, quote, many doors might be thrown open for her with just a nod of his famous handsome head on her behalf, end quote. Lana, then about eight years old, remembers, quote, It seemed like a long time passed before Natalie got back into the car and woke me up when she slammed the door shut. 
She writes that Natalie looked awful, adding, quote, She was very disheveled and very upset, and she and Mom started urgently whispering to each other. I couldn't really hear them or make out what they were saying. Something bad had apparently happened to my sister, but whatever it was, I was apparently too young to be told about it, end quote. According to Lana, she and Natalie never discussed what had happened until they were both adults. It was at that point that Natalie detailed her rape, telling her sister, quote, And he hurt me, Lana. It was like an out-of-body experience. I was terrified. I was confused. End quote. According to Lana, her sister and mother had decided that it would tarnish Natalie's Hollywood standing to publicly accuse Douglas. Suck it up were Maria's words of advice to her daughter, Perlana. The article then ends saying, quote, Kirk's son, Michael Douglas, responded to the allegation in a statement to the Associated Press, quote, May they both rest in peace, end quote. So that's from the Vanity Fair article about this incident. And this is, of course, only Lana's version of events. We will never know the truth of it, as the people involved have now both passed on. But it's not... I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that this happened to anyone at that time. I think things are finally, hopefully, starting to change. But certainly back then, she would not be alone in being, you know, a young actress being preyed upon by men in the industry, right? Definitely. um, Yeah, I need that book. Yeah. And the podcast you mentioned, the podcast that was mentioned in the article, is actually called Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. It came out in 2018, I think. Yeah, I'm going to add that one to my list, too. I'm fascinated by that case, and I have my own theory of what happened. Yeah. I mean, her whole life story is really so sad, and she went through a lot. And I mean, who knows how many more young men and women were sexually assaulted at the Marmont or the other famous Hollywood hotels, right, while they tried to make a name for themselves. Of course. And, of course, there were also many affairs that were kept secret at the Marmont. We named Gene Harlow and Clark Gable. There are many, many, many more. Some are, you know, known, some are rumored, some may never come to light. Next up, the, in my opinion, most famous story that includes the Chateau Marmont, and the reason why I knew this place even existed as a teenager, and that's the tragic death of John Belushi. So when I was 14, or I don't know, maybe 15 years old, I developed a short-time obsession with the movie Blues Brothers. <laughs> and I had kind of a crush on Jake Blues, who many might know was played by John Belushi. So <laughs> I made my friends watch Blues Brothers over and over and over again until they were sick of it. Okay, so I read then somewhere John Belushi was dead and that he had died at this obscure Hollywood hotel. I mean, he died way before I was interested in him, but, you know. John Belushi, of course, was first of all known as an original member of Saturday Night Live. So that's together with Lorraine Newman, Jane Curtin, Gilda Radner, Dan Aykroyd, Garrett Morris, and Chevy Chase. Yeah. Just a few stars. Just a few stars, yeah. Just a few. Just a little bit of talent in that room. John Belushi's big Hollywood break came with Animal House, and then, of course, with Blues Brothers. And I think in those years, he was pretty much going back and forth between Los Angeles and New York. He did have a couple of movie projects that he was interested in, and so by the end of 1981, beginning of 1982, he was once more in L.A., And he sometimes stayed at the Marmont. He too, like so many others, appreciated the home away from home, you know, we mentioned it last week. And the very unpretentious surroundings, as well as the fact that it was not a place where your escapades would be made public. He had rented one of the bungalows, that's Bungalow 3, Uh, that was one of the two bungalows that had been added in the 1950s in mid-century modern style. Huge glass windows, I find them very pretty. Have you looked at them any? Yeah, they're very mid-century modern, if that's your style, then. You also have to know that John Belushi had been struggling with substance abuse for a while now, on and off, uh, mostly cocaine and heroin. Rumor has it that there was even a budget position for cocaine when shooting Blues Brothers. Jesus. John used it to overcome his insecurities and self-doubt, but also to be able to handle the long working hours. And there were times where he was completely abstinent, but he was fully relapsed by the end of 1981. At that time, he did spend $2,500 per week on drugs in 80s money. 
That's too much money for drugs. That's a mortgage payment today, right? Never mind 40 years ago. That's horse money. Like, you could have a few horses yeah. for that kind of That's money. That's a lot of money. That's, I just can't imagine... It just makes me sad. And I know there's a long history of in Hollywood, right? I mean, we could, we could, that would actually be an interesting episode just to talk about the things that people, especially women, but people in Hollywood did go through. Mm. Like studios would put them basically on cocaine and, and downers and painkillers very shocking. often because they had yeah. to work with, with injuries. Yeah. yeah. I'm really glad that people are more open these days. Not, I'm not saying that these are problems that we've solved, right? Obviously, these are not problems we've solved. But like, if you just look at Pete Davidson, like on the current cast of SNL, yeah. who is so open about his mental health struggles, his addiction struggles, you know, and it's, it's so healthy to see people actually talking about health, really. Yeah, sorry. Okay. No, no. It's, but yeah, it's, that's it's true. so much money, though. Right, yeah. It's so much money on... It's yeah, so much money. It's just so much drugs. It's it's too much. Friends later said that when they would walk down the street with, with John, the dealers already knew him and would just hand him the drugs while passing by. <sighs> yeah. Because even if you're trying to maybe get off, you know what I, I mean? Think like, it's how do you so even... hard if you're in that business and, and you know, yeah. this kind of people. How do you get away from it, right? I think it's... Right. It's Heads off to everybody who makes it out of... Of addiction. It's such a terrible disease. Yeah. Yeah. So on 28th of February, 1982, so one day after my third birthday, actually, mm. John Belushi once more checked into the Chateau Marmont, into Bangalore 3. It was 4th of March, 1982. During the day, John had been visited by some of his friends during different times. One was Robin Williams. The other one was Robert De Niro. Uh, Robert De Niro had tried to get him to go out with him to a famous club on Sunset Strip called On the Rocks, and John Belushi never made it there. He was at the hotel with a drug dealer named Kathy. I'm not going to use her last name. Is that okay? I think she's still alive. Yeah, no, I think that's fine. Yeah. Who prepared a so-called speedball for John, which is a mix of cocaine and heroin, which... Well, it's an upper and a downer combined, right? So I, it's it's like taking sleeping pills with espresso. I'm not sure. Yeah, it has to be. I think the <laughs> trying to balance each yeah other the, out. the balance of it to get it right. It's like yeah whatever. Yeah, I don't. It all sounds yeah no. It seems like a very yeah. bad idea to me. We do not. We do not endorse it. No. We are not fans. Just say no, everybody. So as I said, a mix of cocaine and heroin, and it's used intravenously. Mm. And so they took that and the two fell asleep. At one point, Kathy woke up and, and she hears that John made these very weird breathing noises. So she wakes him up and she asks, hey, are you okay? And he just replies, kind of slurred, yeah, he's fine, but please don't leave me alone. And he falls asleep again. And then Kathy leaves around 10 a.m. So that's the 5th of March, 1982. That's all according to her testimony, though. I want to make that very clear. So she leaves around 10 a.m. and around noon, John's personal trainer and assistant arrives. He wants to drop off some things like a typewriter and a, I don't know, recorder, I think. And he finds John lying. I think he was lying on the couch, if I remember correctly. And he's not responsive. And so, of course, the personal trainer immediately calls 911. The ambulance and the paramedics arrive, but there's nothing that they can do. And he's declared dead on scene there in the bungalow. And Kathy mm. returns a couple of hours later and she's arrested and brought in for questioning and released soon after. And of course, the cause of death was ruled an accidental overdose. This whole story makes me so sad. Always did. Yeah. John's wife, Judy, who was actually his high school sweetheart, I think, uh, she once said in an interview, and I'm paraphrasing here, they had everything and then the drugs destroyed it all. Addiction is such a devastating disease. It's sad. So then Judy arranged a Christian Orthodox funeral, and John Belushi was laid to rest at Abel's Hill Cemetery in Chilmark, Massachusetts, on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Annie, I know you love a good epitaph. His headstone reads, quote, I may be gone, but rock and roll lives on, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> There's also, I think, an inscription on his parents' headstone, where they say, in memory of our son, what was it, our son John Belushi, who made us laugh, or something like that. Very sweet, actually. Very, very sweet. Oh, that's really nice. I like that. I honestly don't know if the rock and roll headstone is still there, because his body was removed at one point and placed in an unmarked grave. 
Because all the time people oh. would show up and be horribly disrespectful. They were littering stuff and so. I know that people used to leave things at the grave, especially people would pour out booze, right? And then just leave a bottle or those little individual nips that I think a lot of places are trying to get rid of that they serve on airplanes, you know, those little single. But yeah, they, they pour things out, right? And leave it at the grave. And it's always seemed really inappropriate for the grave of, of somebody struggling with addiction. Definitely. I think some people just associate him with his character in Animal House or, I don't know. We can go there. We can go to the vineyard when you visit. Um, I would love his to. His stone, I think, also had like a, a really cool Victorian skull yeah. and crossbones kind of. Yeah. It was a it was a good one. We'll have to see if, if it's still there for sure. And Kathy, the one who had, uh, you know, provided him with drugs and injected him with the speedball. She was the last person to see him alive. She gave an interview with the National Enquirer two months after John Belushi's death, where she admitted that she had been there and that she was the one who gave him the drugs. And after that article came out, the case was reopened and Kathy was charged with first-degree murder. And in the end, she entered a plea bargain and that reduced the charge to involuntary manslaughter. And she served 15 months in prison. Yeah, that's... I mean, Fair enough, I think. She deserved to spend some time yeah. there. Yeah. Well, just leaving him, especially, I just, that's the thing that I can't get over. She already heard that he had breathing difficulties. Yeah. It's not like people who are, like, in it, in the throes of addiction, are known for making the best life that's choices, true. right? So I think it probably was involuntary. I think it was probably the right charge. I think, yeah. Because I don't think she was trying to kill him. Like, no, it was an accidental. I don't think so. no. But she was ultimately responsible for it. So. Yeah. And John Belushi's death also leads to the only ghost we will be mentioning today. Do you all know the Hotel California song by the Eagles? Yes. Yeah, the lyrics in the end say, quote, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave, end quote. Many think that the song was inspired by Chateau Marmont, actually. I don't think it was, but it's also kind of lore. I'm just mentioning it because it looks as if John Belushi never left. There are several stories of weird occurrences in Bungalow 3. So, for example, from lagosttour.com, quote, Al Franken claims to have experienced an encounter with his late friend at the Marmont. According to Franken, a skeptic himself, he arrived at the chateau a week after Belushi's passing and stayed in the very same bungalow. He awoke late at night from a fitful sleep to see the ghostly figure of John Belushi standing over him. John. He called out, blinking. But by the time he got his glasses on, John had disappeared. End quote. That'd be cool. There's another story of a young family staying at Bungalow three years later. A wife, her husband, and their toddler, who was barely verbal yet. And at one point of their stay, the mom hears the kid laughing and giggling. And she asks, what's so funny? To what the toddler replies, funny man. And later, during their stay, the couple looked through a book that was on the coffee table. It was either a photo book about L.A. in general or the hotel. Uh, I'm not quite sure. So they are sitting there turning the pages and then they come to a photo of John Belushi. And the toddler points at it smiling, saying, funny man. That's creepy. Creepy and cute. Yeah, I find it kind of... It's super cute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have to disagree with you, though. That's not the only ghost story. I mean, it's the only ghost we know of who maybe it is, right? Because I think there's other ghosts. We're just not sure who they might be. So there's room 79 in the hotel, and many former staff members call this room the most haunted room. So haunted, in fact. How haunted was it? <laughs> it was so haunted. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know why I started the sentence that way. <laughs> Um, rumor I just had it that, that so many employees just wouldn't go anywhere near that room to like to clean it. And they reported knocking sounds, strange noises, furniture being moved around, even like a floating disembodied head. <laughs> so, mmm, spooky. <laughs> I also found several other ghost stories that took place at Chateau Marmont, and unfortunately... I couldn't figure out specifically what rooms that these hauntings allegedly had taken place in. One female reported that she was awakened by the noise of the window in her room opening, and then she felt someone crawl into bed and lie still next to her while she just lay there trying not to move, which is 
terrifying. And so after a while, when she didn't hear or feel anything, she looked up and looked around only to see that nobody was there in the room with her. Okay, this, I wish she would have tried to move because this sounds an awful lot like my sleep paralysis episodes. That's what I thought at first. But here's the problem. While there was no one in the room with her, the window was opened. And she was sure she had closed it when she went to bed. So that is chilling. There's more spooky fuckery. So another guest was staying in... This is my favorite. This is the room I want to know which room was this in, because this is where we're going to stay. So another guest stayed. It was already really late at night, and he was fast asleep when he woke up because of really loud noise, party noise, music, and people talking. And so he's obviously really annoyed. So he goes to the window, opens it up, and like leans out to see where this noise is coming from. It's quiet outside. There's no noise out there. So he goes back into the room and he opens the door to the hallway and he sticks his head out in the hallway thinking, you know, a neighbor across the hall is having this party. There's nothing. There's no sound in the hallway. And that's when he realizes the party noises are coming from inside the house. (laughs) They're coming from inside his own room. And this actually has happened to my sister a few times at my house. She hears piano music upstairs, but can't find the source. But in this case, the guest had a ghost party going on. And the coolest part is that it turns out the doors used to party in that room back in the 60s. I want a haunted doors party. (laughs) Potty. I want a haunted potty. No, I do not. I want a haunted (laughs) doors party. I don't know more toilet ghosts. That is uh, creepy. I'm having a little bit of goosebumps, but it's also cool. (laughs) Right? Speaking of the doors... Their frontman, you know that story, Jim Morrison, he reportedly liked to climb around on the shingled roofs of the (laughs) hotel. And one time in 1970, he tried to swing from one of the balconies to another balcony, and he was using a drain pipe. Unfortunately, the drain pipe got loose, and Jim Morrison fell down two stories, actually. But apparently he wasn't hurt too badly, I assume just a few scrapes and scratches. The parting... The partying must have been so intense at the moment, because I'm I'm sure he wasn't sober when he did that, right? You think? I bet a shrubbery caught him, and that's why he wasn't... I bet he landed square in a shrubbery. Yeah, definitely. Led Zeppelin once partied so hard and had so many strangers coming and going that the hotel manager decided to move them to one of their bungalows. I love how management didn't boot them. They didn't kick them out. They were just like, listen, we're just going to move you to this this better location for your partying, okay? I actually just found like two or three stories of people who ever got booted out of the hotel. That's such a rare occurrence, apparently. How bad must you have to fuck up to get kicked (laughs) out of the hotel? Let's find out. (laughs) There is another story involving Led Zeppelin or one of their bandmates, the drummer John Bonham. Story has it that he rode his Harley through the main lobby and down the contorted hallways I'm not entirely convinced, though, that this story is true, because the lobby of the Chateau Marmont is relatively small. It's a great story, though. Yeah. It's a really good story. It is. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, of course, right, that it makes absolute sense that there are more ghost stories connected to the hotel. After all, there are so many things that went on there over the years. And one more death that we know of. John Belushi wasn't the only person who died at the Marmont. So Helmut Newton, famed German fashion photographer, wait, actually Helmut Newton was born in Germany. He was named Helmut Neustädter, that was his real name. And he was the son of a Jewish button and belt buckle factory owner. Say that five times. Button and belt. Wow. Button and button and belt buckle factory. That was in Berlin in the 1920s. In Berlin. Mm-hmm. It was a Berlin button and buckle, a belt buckle factory. Okay. So his family left Germany in 1938 after the Reichskristallnacht, which is the night of broken glass. They fled their home country and settled in Argentina. Uh, Helmut didn't go with them. He left Germany the same year, though, when he was 18 years old and got a hold of a passport. He didn't go to join his family in Argentina. He fled to Singapore. And later he was moving on to Australia. He became an Australian citizen. So he's more of a German-slash-Australian fashion photographer, right? Yeah. Early on, he became interested in photography, and he started to work for the British and the Australian Vogue, which, of course, had him travel all over the world. And so he also came to L.A. 
and it was in 1957 that he stayed at the Marmont for the very first time. He would of course often return to LA for work and many times he would stay at the Marmont. In later years he would split up his time between Monte Carlo and Los Angeles, so he would spend the summer in Monte Carlo and the winter in LA. But again, whenever he was in LA he would now stay at the Marmont. And it was on 23rd of January 2004, he was 83 years at the time, and he was driving his car out of the garage and down Marmont Lane when he suffered a severe heart attack that made him lose control over his vehicle. The car jumped a curb and crashed into a wall on the other side of the street, and Helmut Newton was then taken to Cedar sinai Medical Center, where he was declared dead a little while later. So yeah, technically he didn't die at the Marmont, unlike John Belushi, but he did suffer a heart attack on the property. And then this is a good moment to debunk a common rumor. So F. Scott Fitzgerald did not suffer a heart attack in front of the Chateau Marmont. The American novelist uh, had risen to fame and fortune through masterpieces like The Great Gatsby and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, but he actually became famous with his debut novel, This Side of Paradise. For the son of a middle-class family, the sudden success was a little bit overwhelming, and he and his wife Zelda became the it couple of the Roaring Twenties. For a while, they lived at the very fancy Biltmore Hotel in New York City, and then they traveled to Europe, living mostly in Paris among all those very famous international artists. We're not going to get into too much detail again. This would be a whole other episode, and Zelda's story is very sad. She suffered from depression and was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, although I think today most people believe that she actually had uh, bipolar disorder. It was so hard. I mean, it's not that it's easy for anybody suffering from mental health problems today. I mean, I have them. It's it's not easy today. But back then, yeah, so difficult. so much worse, yeah. Difficult to Ugh. get the right diagnosis. Treatment, Treatment and medication, diagnosis, yeah, diagnosis. yeah all of Especially it. as a and woman, I have to say it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And Zelda did spend a lot of time in sanatoriums. F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda did end up growing more apart. He turned to alcohol, which didn't help anything, especially his writing. And also, the Great Depression took its toll on him, and he returned to the United States, a broken man with a lot of debt. He went to Hollywood and began to work for the studios, and I think if if we're remembering correctly... He wasn't really working as a writer. He did work on a script of his own, but he was also asked to be a consultant for writing departments. But he didn't stay at the Marmont once he returned to Los Angeles. He could not afford it. He was staying across the street at the Garden of Allah, which was another infamous hideout for celebrities during the 1920s and 30s. It wasn't cheap either, but it was more affordable than the Marmont. In 1938, he suffered a heart attack right in front of Schwab's Pharmacy. So Schwab's Pharmacy and the Garden of Allah would actually both make really good episodes as well, right? Mm. There's so much history there and celebrity gossip in these places. Schwab's was only a four-minute walk from the Chateau Marmont, and it used to be one of the most infamous Hollywood hangouts. So every young actor, everyone who wanted to set foot in the movie industry... They were at Schwab's, where they could get something for their hangover, eat a sandwich, and wait for a call for their agent, all at the same time. It's multitasking. We love it. And yes, that is where F. Scott Fitzgerald sadly suffered a heart attack, not the Chateau Marmont. No. Betty Davis, however, pivoting, uh, she almost burned down the hotel, not once, but twice. It's the same number of times I've run myself over with my own car. To be fair, she was only to blame once. Only one of those fires was really her fault. So in 1958, she was staying at the hotel, watching a movie. Legend says, or lore says, about this true incident that the movie she was watching was one of her own old films, and she fell asleep while holding a cigarette. Thank God someone saw smoke coming out the window, and she was saved. But the whole hotel had to be evacuated. No one was hurt, though. The second time Betty's room caught fire, it was not her fault. It was faulty wiring. I still feel like if I'm Betty Davis, I'm not going to stay there a third time, though. Right? Like, did she? Do we know? I don't think we know, but... I think I read something that she never uh, stayed there again. I hope so. Yeah. Take the hint, Betty. Take the hint. Yeah. 
Yeah. So <laughs> last week we talked about Jean Harlow and her new husband who spent the, the first month of their marriage at the Marmont. But there were other newlyweds who stayed at the hotel and one of them were Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. After they got married, they moved into the hotel because they didn't yet have a proper residence in LA. They would host weekly parties every Friday where they would invite many of their friends. Like I know Warren Beatty was a regular there. Mia Farrow was a regular there. It was only when Sharon found out that she was pregnant that the couple started to look for a house because uh, they didn't want to, to raise a baby or a kid at a hotel, which I can totally understand. Not even the Chateau Marmont. <laughs> if you're a hotel owner, it's different, but... No, I'm with you. It's like, you have a baby in a bar. Yeah, something like that. And they found a house. They found a house in Laurel Canyon, and they rented it from music producer and son of Doris Day, Terry Melcher. And this is, of course, the house where Sharon Tate and her friends ultimately died, murdered by members of the Manson family. Yeah, that's an incredibly tragic story, which you spoke a little bit more about in our first Down the Rabbit mm. Hole episode. Yeah, it's amazing, as you mentioned, how many more crazy LA connections the Manson murders had. Um, that was a really interesting episode, but I had no idea that they lived at the Marmont before they moved to Laurel Canyon. I didn't know that. Yeah. So now we're going to end this episode on a somewhat more uplifting note. We're going to talk a little bit about the true friendship, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And of course, now we're going to talk about Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift. They first met when Elizabeth was 17 and Monty's co-star in the movie A Place in the Sun. We talked about this movie a little bit before in the episode where we discussed the murder of Grace Brown. I love it when our episodes tie back to one of our other episodes. I think it's the best. I know, especially with movies. There's movies in yeah. today's episode. All right. So this is an excerpt from an article that was in Town & Country magazine on May 25th, 2021. And Charles Casillo wrote this excellent article. And these are just, this is a few excerpts of it. Quote, It is said that when Montgomery Clift discovered who his love interest in A Place in the Sun would be, he exclaimed, quote, Who the hell is Elizabeth Taylor? Elizabeth was more visible than the publicity-shy Monty. You couldn't help but come across her photo in any magazine or newspaper. Always, she came across as being poised, beautiful, and somewhat vacuous. She was perfectly posed and perfectly guarded, and, it seemed, always camera-ready. Monty was the enigmatic one. He equaled Elizabeth in terms of beauty, but he also had mystery. Monty would get star billing. On hearing that she would be starring opposite Montgomery in a George Stevens movie, Elizabeth felt somewhat intimidated. There were a lot of stories about Monty going around show business circles. The articles she had read about him in movie magazines stated that he was a, quote, misfit, even a freak. Mixed in with his good looks, this made him seem exotic. But more than anything, he was considered a serious actor from the New York stage. Suddenly being a Hollywood film star seemed small in comparison. After she was cast in the film, Stevens invited Elizabeth to his office to meet Monty for the first time. Elizabeth had been terrified to meet Stevens. She was in awe of the intellectual director, and she was just as intimidated about meeting Monty. I was so scared, she said. I thought, oh God, here's this accomplished New York stage actor, and I'm just a Hollywood nothing. She had already heard that Monty intended to spend the night in an actual state prison to see what it felt like to be on death row. Elizabeth had never considered the importance of researching your character. She acted on a completely instinctive level. In Stephen's office, when Elizabeth first saw Monty, she was dumbstruck. Quote, he was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen, she said. I remember my heart stopped when I looked into those green eyes, and that smile, that smile, that roguish, boyish smile. End quote. So, those are some quote quotes from Elizabeth. And they worked on the movie together. She was playing his love interest, Angela. Elizabeth Taylor was just this beautiful, outgoing young woman. And Montgomery was more of a Hollywood misfit at the time. Now, of course, one of the reasons for Monty's closed-up persona was his homosexuality or bisexuality. Back in the 1950s, you could not dare be openly gay in most professions, and if you wanted a career in Hollywood, you better hide that part of your life pretty well from the public eye. So, Elizabeth and Montgomery became fast friends. They connected deeply, not only through their humor, 
but it was in 1956 when Montgomery Clift was in an almost fatal car crash. That night, he had been at dinner at Elizabeth's house on Tower Road in Coldwater Canyon, which looks on the map like it's close to Benedict Canyon, which is where all the Hollywood celebrities lived at the time, so people from L.A. let us know if this is in fact true. So Monty drives down this winding street, and apparently he missed a turn, and his car went over an embankment and hit a telephone pole. We're going to post a photo of the car. It was totaled. The story goes that for whatever reason, Elizabeth Taylor arrived on the scene before paramedics could get there. Uh, I assume she and her friends were probably in the car right behind Monty's, right? So just immediately came across it or even saw it happen. Maybe after dinner, they had all decided to go out to one of the hot clubs at the time. In any case, Elizabeth gets out of her car, and she climbs down the embankment, and she sees this incredibly awful wreck, and she finds Monty. I can only assume that he was still behind the wheel. Uh, She sees he's having difficulty breathing, and so she sticks her fingers into his mouth and down his throat, and she pulls out something that is blocking his windpipe, and she looks down, and it is his broken teeth, which is horrific. She saved his life. She's, she's, she did. She's a hero. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Yeah, not many people would think to do that yeah. so quickly, you know? Montgomery Clift needed several plastic surgeries on top of all of the other very painful recovering he had to do. And so when he was able to leave the hospital, he checked into the Chateau Marmont to stay until he was all healed up and ready to go back to shooting the film he was working on at the time, another movie he had done with Elizabeth Taylor called Raintree County. So, Monty is living at the Marmont for months. His mouth and nose were deformed, and half of his face was paralyzed. He told the management at Chateau Marmont that he didn't want anyone to come to his suite. The staff were forbidden from entering his rooms. He had light bulbs and mirrors removed. I think he just left, like, people just left fresh towels and food at Mm. the door, right? And just left. He just, he never recovered from the traumatic accident. His looks were never the same as before. And that really took a heavy toll on his confidence. And he was addicted to painkillers until his death at age 46, which was only 10 years later, which is... Sad. Very sad. Yeah. Mm. Very. But as we said before, we wanted to end this on a more uplifting note and just mention that Elizabeth Taylor not only saved his life, the day of that accident, but many people say that she was there with Monty all along at the uh, Chateau Marmont, helping to nurse him when he wasn't when he wasn't well. Well, we found no really one hundred percent reliable source that proves that as fact. But I don't know. Given from what we know of the friendship and how much he meant to her, I can absolutely see that happen. I really do think that Elizabeth Taylor stayed with her friend as much as she could. Right. And we've had to talk about so many other things that are not completely 100% verifiable, yeah. right? But they're all really awful. So we'll leave you this one that's kind of a little bit a little bit nicer, which is what a very, very good friend, it seems, Elizabeth Taylor was. And that's it. We could have added a lot more stories about the Marmont, but it's like you have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. When Vivian Lee moved in after her divorce from Laurence Olivier and brought her Picassos or Marilyn Monroe, this is a really good one. She gave an interview in one of the suites. And so the reporter gets there and she's like, is it okay if we move this to the bedroom? And he's like, yeah, that's fine by me. And so he like follows her to the bedroom and she's like, thank you so much. I'm just so exhausted. I need to lie down while you interview me. So, <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, it's so good, right? The hotel has seen so many people, funny, sad, terrifying, amazing things, and it is absolutely a Los Angeles landmark. Absolutely. It was always on my bucket list. I always wanted to spend one or two nights there, preferably at Bungalow 3. I'm sorry if that seems weird or macabre to you out there. Uh, No, I'd want to stay there too. But yeah... (laughs) It uh, seems like I missed a chance to do that, at least for now, because apparently the Chateau Marmont is going to be turned into a very fancy timeshare-like members-only club in the near future. Oh, I bet we'll be able to find someone that knows someone that knows. I mean, we are we are niche internet celebrities. <laughs> they can't clear us niche. out. <laughs> <laughs> we are, do you know who we are? <laughs> no, that's all right. Nobody else knows who we are either. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, Melissa, the host of Just the Tipsters, 
Melissa. Which is so amazing. You should go and listen to her. Uh, she told us that the bar at the Marmont makes the best burgers and fries. So unless they also close the bar and restaurant to the public. We're there. And make it members only. We could at least go there and have some fantastic fries. I'm ready. It's a date. Melissa, we're going to make it happen. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. All right. Something good. So happy belated birthday to the wonderful Paul, my my other half. Happy birthday. We, we had a nice relaxing birthday weekend. And also to Susie and Kevin, two of my favorite people who also share the same birthday as my husband. A lot of good people were born on March 19th. And the other something good is we are going out to dinner tonight with, with good friends, some of our best friends, uh, to one of my favorite restaurants that I haven't been to in forever, forever, forever. And I'm I'm... Really excited to see friends and go out to eat. I know this sounds like silly, but it's... I'm excited. <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you. If you would be so kind as to leave us a review, we would be so, so grateful. If you can... If you're on Apple and you can leave us a review, look at that, 921. We're getting there. We're getting there. I'm trying to get us to 1,000. In the U.S., yes, Alexis and Sherry and James, yes, thank you, everybody. Joel. Bree, yes, Sorto, love you. Thank you for all of the reviews because I'm trying to get to a thousand. We really appreciate it. It's, it's kind of a pain in the ass to leave a review, so we really appreciate it when you take the time to do it. If you want to know more about uh, our Patreon, go to patreon.com, go to the search bar, Type in Fresh Hell. We're going to pop right up. You're going to see everything you need to know. Or go to our webpage, which is freshhellpodcast.com. There you find the link to Patreon, to our merch store, to our email, P.O. box. <sighs> what else? To our Facebook group, which is amazing. Get there before they close us down for posting. Yeah. Things about murder. Pablo Escobar mugshots. <laughs> <laughs> gorilla videos and that's it please tell your pets we said hi we love them we miss them keep sending us photos posting them in the facebook group we want to see all your pets and be also kind to your fellow human being because sometimes they deserve the benefit of the doubt at least once and if you are going through hell keep going tschüss bye bye